this is good, no wildly embarrassing sing-along song to uh, embarrass me. This is great. This is already starting off better than last week. <laughs> no. Um, welcome. We are going through a series on culture wars, but before we get there, I'm going to remind you of this amazing picture. Do you remember this picture? Cold fingers juggling green reindeer. A little way for us to remember how to present the gospel to someone that we're having a conversation with. We talk about creation, we talk about the fall, we talk about God's judgment or justice, and then we talk about the gospel or grace, and then we ask for a response. And what we've been able to do this past week is we have these little, almost the size of a business card, with that picture on the front to help remind you of that picture and those words. And then on the back, we actually have the word creation, fall, judgment, God's grace, and response along with scripture verses. So that you can look at this, you can look them up and say, well, what do you, what do you mean God created all things? Well, you can turn to that verse and say, this is God created. And you can use this, uh, keep it in your pocket, uh, you can take a picture of it if you want to just keep it on your phone, but it's a great little tool to help you gain the confidence that each one of you have the ability to share the gospel with the people around you. You can do it. God has called you to be the missionaries to the lost and suffering world, and this is a little tool that if you find helpful, keep it with you because it will help give you confidence to present the gospel with accuracy with precision and with scripture. And you might even just show them that little picture in order just simply to get the conversation started. I haven't tried that, but it might work well for you. Uh, but as we go through this entire series, Culture Wars, understanding the gospel and being able to present it like Paul did in First and Second Thessalonians gives us a way, the way, to give answers to the world around us when the world around us is confused, angry, and split in every other different direction there can be, we can show them truth, and we can show them life through Christ. So those little cards are available on the back tables in the, the hallway there. Take a couple. We have lots of them. Use them, study them, read them, look up those scripture verses, and gain the confidence that you can be the missionaries and witnesses and evangelists to the world around you when God gives you the opportunity. So as we're looking at culture wars in general, we've seen a few things so far. We've seen how God defines a Christian and how he uses that word to mean people, not inanimate objects or things or events, but people are described as Christians in Scripture. Secondly, we've seen some uh, ways in which we are encouraged to think about our relationships. And that's basically what Paul said last week. We need to consider our relationships in reference to the world around us and not be unequally yoked. Not dealing with only marriage, but any type of relationship where we bind ourselves to that person's goals and loves and passions we are to take a step back and say, I'm not going to engage in that. I can have a relationship, we can you know, do business, but I'm not going to partner myself with you as an unbeliever in any activities where we are working towards a common goal because those goals are radically different. And so Paul says, stay away from those unequally yoked relationships. 
not just in marriage, but it does also include marriage. And so today, we're going to look at another radical difference between the Christian and non-Christian in how we approach this age-old dilemma or problem of looking at other people and judging them. That's not a non-Christian problem. It is a Christian problem. And the number of times I have been told by non-Christian friends and work associates when a topic comes up, let's just say, uh, uh, let's just pick a big one, abortion. Abortion comes up in the conversation. And I say, well, I think abortion is wrong. And I think it violates God's law. It does not value life under any circumstance. And <laughs> the argument always comes up, well, who are you to say to another person, especially as a man to a woman, what she can do with her body? Well, pretty much the same way a cop can tell me whether or not I can go into a bank and rob it. Same reason, because God says no. And then, of course, in those conversations, another big topic comes up. What do you think what topic comes up right after abortion? About judging people and how we should let people live their own lives. What's the next topic that usually comes up? Homosexuality. Who am I to say who someone can love and not love? Who am I to judge and, and condemn that person? And if you've not had those kind of conversations with the people around you, I would encourage you, it is a good thing to be involved in the world as far as witnesses and evangelists. We can't hide and cloister ourselves in a church and let our religion only fall within these four walls. We live the Christian life in front of everyone. And so when we see something morally reprehensible to God, and we're given an opportunity in love to speak about it, we should. And the world will immediately say, well, you're not supposed to judge. And there's only a few verses that the world really knows, but that's one of them. Don't judge, lest you be judged. And somehow that's supposed to end the argument about moral rightness and wrongness. But God doesn't call us never to make a judgment call on right and wrong. He says there's a way and a process to do it, and it is not the way the world does it. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, the last part of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave. And in that last chapter, he talks about judging others. And in the first two verses, let me read that, Matthew chapter 7, give you a second to turn there, flip there, search there. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says very clearly in the first two verses, do not judge or you too will be judged. And then he defines what it means that we fall under some type of restrictive judgment. He says in verse 2, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. God doesn't forbid the act of looking at a lifestyle or an action and making a comparison between that and what God says. That's judging, looking at what someone has done or said in relationship to God's Word. Judging happens all the time. I judge the person in front of me if they're driving too slow, if they stop at a yellow light, which I still think you can go through the yellow light. You just have, a, it depends on where you are in the process of driving up to the yellow light. 
I'm fine with being corrected, but I still believe that. We judge consistently and constantly. And God says there is a process and a way to do that as a believer that is radically different than the world. And it's to take in consideration that while I am looking at God's Word in relationship to an action or a word, that I actually am fair in the entire process. Because I want that same fairness to be applied to me, which means I do not read into the person's motives. I don't read into the person's intelligence. I'm able to do that real easily, right? I don't read into those things. I look at the surface and I say, this is what God's Word says, this is the action, and they don't meet. And if they don't meet, God's Word still remains supreme. That does not get compromised. I've told you before that the scariest verse in all of Scripture also happens in the Sermon on the Mount, and it happens in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as what? As we forgive our debtors. We're asking God to grant us forgiveness in the same way I forgive someone who offends me. Wow. I mean, I, I got goosebumps thinking about that. Because it is hard for us to forgive people who have offended us, right? Is it hard? It's absolutely hard. You don't have to raise your hand because I'm raising it for you. It is hard for you to forgive other people, especially when they've done it over and over and over and over again. And they don't change. To where Peter said, how many times do I really have to forgive someone? 70 times 7. Per day. Insurmountable numbers. Which means you just forgive and forgive and forgive. The same way I forgive people, Lord, look at me and forgive me. That is exactly what Jesus is saying here because he's had the Lord prayer earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount. He's just reiterating this fact of, hey, when we judge and take God's word in relationship to others, God, I want you to show the same fairness in applying it to me. Now, the beautiful thing about God applying his justice to us is he knows the motive of our heart. He knows the intent behind our action and our words. He doesn't have to guess, oh, you were kind of being spiteful towards that or passive-aggressive in that or that's not what you really mean. We do that so frequently that Jesus has to say, stop it because you don't want God doing that to you, do you? No, I want God to be fair and just. I want God to be forgiving and merciful. And so Jesus says, when you judge, realize that you are going to be judged the same way you judge others. It gives you a moment of pause. A moment of pause. Let me real quick go on to the next uh, few verses, verses 3 through 5. And I titled these few verses here about um, true self-care. Has anyone heard recently about this self-care phenomenon? Self-care? You need self-care, you need self-care. It's not just in the secular world, but it's even within a church environment, a Christian environment, religious environment, where you need to have self-care. So what you do is, for a day, for an hour, for a time, you just simply focus on, guess what? You. Just make it a me day. 
Make it all about you today. Make all the activities, all the thoughts you have, everything about you today. We're going to celebrate you. And it's all designed to, oh, okay, yeah, I'm not that bad off. I am a good person. I, I'm doing great. I need that encouragement. Pat me on the back, but I pat myself on the back throughout the entire self-care time because you deserve it. You're the best there is. Celebrate that. God has a different way of presenting self-care from the world. It is radically different. It is contrary to all the practices of self-care. And it falls in line with judging. Because Jesus says in the next verses, when he's just said, hey, you want God to be fair with you? This is the first step to begin being fair towards others. He says in verse 3 through 5, why, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus has some wonderful principles in those verses to help us understand how this whole judging thing works. Because Jesus doesn't say looking at another person's action and God's word and finding sin, you're not supposed to say anything. Listen to that very last verse. Verse 5 says, you hypocrite. Okay, let's not listen to that right now. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So Jesus does say there is time and opportunity to address someone's thoughts, actions, and words in relationship to God's Word, but instead of jumping to that and heaping judgment upon someone, what you first need to do is take care of your own sin. Take care of your own heart. Ah. Oh, okay, I'll say it. When it comes to preparing a message, let's just take some, this Sunday morning. Uh, God has a very wonderful, unique way of working in a person's heart. This week is not uncommon like other weeks. I would say that as I go to study for the day, my first middle and last prayer of that entire time of study is making sure I'm right with God. It's not, Lord, help me use the right words. Give me the right reference. Give me the right stories. That, that does happen. And there is thought put into that. There's study put into what do the words mean and how did this work together and what's the relationship with the rest of God's Word. But the meat of it the chunk of time spent in prayer is not asking God to bless this time. It's asking God to make sure my heart, my heart is right. That my heart, my life is right. That I have dealt with the planks in my eyes 
before I tell you to deal with the planks in your eyes. It's self-care. Lord, work on me. Change me. Show me what is inside of my heart that I am blind to, that I might repent, so that when I tell others to repent, we're doing it together. And that they see a heart of compassion, not just words about compassion. That they see a heart of love, not just be more loving. That they see forgiveness on display, not just the command to be forgiving. To have a heart of service and not just words, you need to volunteer more. There's a lot of time spent asking God to work on me. Work on me. And I think anyone who's put together a Bible study, a small group study, um, a message, a sermon, or, or anything where you are taking God's Word to encourage other people, I think the vast majority of people who are put in that situation would say, Tim, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know how hard it is to study God's Word and be personally, spiritually worked on by what God says in order to deliver it to others. It is wrenching at times. I enjoy the process and I enjoy the work of getting close to the Lord, but it is hard and painful to go, where, Lord, am I not right according to your word? And it is deeply, deeply convicting. Deeply convicting. I don't think I'm unlike you that it is so quick to pass judgment and to call someone else out on what they've done wrong and how they've not done it right. And I'm not just talking about not doing it your way. I'm talking about scripturally. It is so quick, so easy for us to take that step and point the finger and accuse and accuse and accuse. And God says the first step in this, He's not forbidding us applying God's Word to a person or a situation and making that judgment call what's right. But he's saying in order to do that, you first better have been working on yourself. And it's not patting yourself on the back. It's asking that hard question, Lord, where am I calloused? Where am I abrasive to the working of your Spirit in my life? What Scripture do I not want to read because it convicts me? Who do I not want to listen to because it's, it's overwhelmingly convicting? True self-care for the Christian is an introspection of where is my heart in relationship to God. And when he reveals that, it is immediate repentance. And there are times where God shows, hey, you're loving just like my servant David has been loving. Or you're just as, as um, truth-focused as the apostles were truth-focused. It could be encouraging. It's not always about, oh, I've got sin and I have to repent. But we're very quick to take the pats on the back and say, yeah, God, you're right, I did good in this. Instead of, Lord, where have I fallen short of honoring your name, of honoring your day of worship, of putting others in front of myself? Lord, show me, show me where I need to improve. 
When was the last time we had prayers like that? Lord, show me where I need to improve. Because my prayer list, there's lots of other people on that list that kind of go in front of that. This is what they need to do and you need to fix them, Lord. You need to bring conviction into their heart. You need to change them. You need to bring them under judgment. You need to tear them down. I mean, the Psalms are full of, of songs and prayers about God judging His enemies. But they seem to always be couched in, Lord, You also are my refuge because I need to be saved from my own sin. Let's listen to those words, words again in Matthew chapter 7. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's heavy. It's heavy. It's real. I think above all, it's humbling. It's humbling to go before God and before others and say you're not perfect, that you don't have it down, that you're struggling. It's, it's hard to admit that you're weak. And that's just not a male thing. Everybody goes through it. It's hard to admit that you're in need and you're weak. And Jesus says, when you go to take out that speck, that sin that's infesting someone else's life, you can do it. But you better be prepared. And the way to prepare is that self-reflective, Lord, what is inside of me that needs to be changed first? What needs to be changed first in my heart and in my life? In Proverbs 27, verse 6, it says, The kisses of an enemy may be profuse, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's that friend that comes in and says, Hey, we need to deal with this. I, I've seen the way you talk. I see the way you act. I, I see what you're focusing on. And... I've gone to God and I, I've, I've worked on this myself. And, and this is the verse he showed me that really has helped me. I want to share that with you. That's what it's like to address something in love. You win so many more friends with that type of approach than you do with the wagging finger of you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. So that's why in Proverbs it says, hey, you know what? An enemy can come up and give you pats on the back and all these accolades. It's meaningless. That's hypocritical. But it's a good thing to have a friend, to have family, to have a church that will tell you what God's Word says with tough topics and hard subjects. It is a good thing to be reminded I need to deal with my sin before I start pointing out the sin of others. 
Jesus has an episode later on in which he is brought a prostitute who was evidently well-known in the town of sleeping around. And the religious leaders and all the self-righteous brought this lady in front of Jesus and said, basically, uh, you know, the Old Testament tells us that we're to stone people who are adulterers. So let's go ahead and stone her. And uh, we're not told exactly what happens, but Jesus writes something in the dirt with his finger. And as the religious leaders and the self-righteous citizens of that town saw what he was writing down, they slowly did what? They left. Now, the commentators are full of what could he have been writing? It could have been the time, place, and date that they themselves went to see the prostitute. That's kind of what people are thinking. Or they're writing down their sins that deserve capital punishment, the times they disobeyed their parents. Wow, big one. Who knows what he wrote, but it brought immediate conviction. See, they had not dealt with their own sin. They just pointed out the sin of others and thought that's all that was needed. Because it feels so good, humanly it feels so good when other people are tore down and you stand tall and proud. It feels good. And Jesus says, the feel good is not the problem. But you're feeling good for the wrong reasons. Because you're tearing down and not building up. We should always be aware that we too are sinners. And that we need forgiveness. And that if we have received mercy, we need to show others mercy. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, and turn there with me, 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to read the first few verses of 2 Samuel 12. Now, as you may or may not remember in this portion of 2 Samuel, but King David is king, second king of Israel. The first was Saul. King David is on the throne. King David's military is incredibly successful, and he is expanding the borders of Israel like never before. It's going to be one of the largest times Israel has ever existed as a nation. And David sends his army out and decides to go up to his palace roof and take in his marvelous city. And as he's up there on the roof, you know the rest of the story. He catches someone taking a bath on top of their roof and calls for her and brings her to the palace She's beautiful. He has relations with her, and she gets pregnant. And then David decides, in order to cover up this sin, he murders her husband through a process of steps. Here we have verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew it up with him and his children. 
It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms like it was a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep to cattle or to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against that man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So Nathan, a prophet from God, God sends him to David and tells him a parable story. A rich man and a poor man. The rich man had everything he ever needed. The poor man had one prized possession. This little lamb that he took care of like a child. The rich man had a traveler that needed to eat. And so the rich man, instead of taking from one of his flock, took and stole the lamb that was as dear as a child in that family to the poor man. And David's reaction is our gut reaction. Unfair. That's unfair. That man had plenty, and he took from someone who had nothing, and David makes the explanation, or the declaration, the man must die. And has to repay everything. Four times over. I don't know how he does that when he's dead, but it happens. Four times over. I can imagine David is feeling pretty good about himself right now. I've passed judgment on this wicked man who had everything. I judged right. Kind of like my son Solomon will do one day. I judged right. And then verse 7. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. I can't imagine that moment of seeing what David's face looks like. I don't know if David is starting to get angry with Nathan. I don't know if David immediately goes, Oh, and his face changes white. But I imagine you could hear a pin drop in the entire palace. You are that man. I anointed you king of Israel, God says, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judea. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more, God said. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. How quickly David changed. Because right after this he went into utter, face-down-in-the-ground repentance. You see, he was very quick to take the speck out of the eye of another when he was living with a plank of sin in his own. So quick and easy to judge until the tables were turned and he had to take care of himself first. 
He fell in repentance. The child's life was taken because of David's actions. Now David has confidence that he'll see him in heaven, but the pain of losing that child because you know it was your fault, devastating to David. In fact, God then tells David, you will never build the temple. Your hands are too bloody. You're too violent of a man to be blessed with building my house. And so that honor went to Solomon. And that's why it's called Solomon's temple, not David's temple. Solomon. And Solomon was the one who expanded Israel to its greatest borders. All of that blessing, all of that success was taken from David and given to Solomon. The last part of the verse back in chapter 7 is kind of seems a little disjointed when you first read it. In chapter 7 of Matthew, verse 6, it says, Do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls before swine. If you do, they may trample them underfoot and turn and tear you to pieces. How in the world did Jesus get from don't judge, and the way you judge is the way you're going to be judged by God, self-care, taking care of your own sin first, making sure you're right with God. Oh, and when it comes to truth, make sure you're careful on who you present it to, because they may just tear you apart. How do those things relate to each other? I think it relates very, very easily. Here it is. As you go through the process, remember, God doesn't say you can't take his truth and someone's actions and see where they meet, both in yourself and in others. But he says there's a process, a way to do that. But there are times where you see the action of someone who is clearly not a believer, who is living in sin. And Jesus says, the warning is this. You may be right before me, but when you take this truth, the pearls that he's talking about there, or what is sacred, and you throw it before the dogs or the swine, you present it to them, they're not going to get it. They're not going to get it. And in fact, they don't care about it. They don't want to hear, thus says the Lord, this is how you to live your life. They don't want to hear that. They reject it. They may even turn on you, not in a violence way, but reject you, unfriend you, whatever it might be. So God says the truth, which he re relates to that which is sacred or, or, or little pearls of truth, that which is precious, he says you need to be careful and wise in who you present that to. Some people are going to be receptive to it, and other people are not going to be receptive to it. In fact, he says that in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7 and 8, and he says it a little bit clearer. Uh, he says, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults, and whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers, or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise, and they will love you. Instruct the wise, and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous, and they will add to their learning. See, Jesus is bringing out the principle that, hey, in this situation where you're living in the world as a believer, and you see God's truth, and you see actions, and they don't match, and you want to say something, 
You want to address it. You don't want unrighteousness to run the day. You don't want this moral uh, decay to continue. So you say, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to make it known what thus says the Lord. God says, when you decide to be that one who stands up and says, thus says the Lord, you need to understand that some people are not going to respond well to that. No kidding. No kidding some people aren't going to respond well to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and don't worship idols. No surprise they're going to say, don't tell me how to live my marriage. Don't tell me who to love. Don't tell me how to spend my money. Don't tell me how to spend my time. Don't tell me, and you fill in the blank. There's no surprise that the world does not like the truth. And so Jesus says, you need to be thoughtful when you present the truth. Be thoughtful. Where is the person at? Are they going to be won over with a hammer? Or are they going to be won over with something else? You're not asked to compromise. You're asked to be wise in how you present the truth to the world. And so that's where he talks about pearls and something precious and sacred. Don't just randomly throw it, but be careful in who you place it with and who you give it to. That's a huge lesson. Huge lesson for us because we can look around at this world and this culture and go, I see so many ways in which God's word is rejected. Where do you start? Do you start by just standing out on a street corner with a sign saying, you're going to hell? Is that how you're going to win people to Christ, the message of love and forgiveness? Or do you approach it differently and there's a time to shout, yes, you need to be saved. You're going to hell if you continue like this. But there are four, far more opportunities to dialogue with people when you present them the truth in love. And that is the heart of what Jesus is getting at. Not to stop presenting the truth, but to do it with thoughtfulness. What does that person need? Do they need an encouragement here? Not an acceptance that their lifestyle is right, that their actions are right, but do they need a hand that comes alongside them and says, look, God has a calling in your life, and you are supposed to fulfill his calling. Let's see what he has to say. And I will be there every step of the way with you to help you through that. Jesus says that's the process in which you go to when the word and the world are at odds. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, it is hard not to judge. Take that wicked aspect of judging away from us that we might truly speak truth in love, knowing that our own hearts are right with you first before we cast the first stone. Father, let us learn the lessons that Jesus taught those religious leaders. Let's learn the lesson that Nathan taught David. Father, please help us to see those parts and areas of our life that need work on, and may we quickly repent of it before we try to call others out. Father, we need a lot of help here. It is so easy to fall into that judging trap. Help us do it rightly, Father. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Two real quick things. Remember, after we are finished, 